Ladies and gentlemen, we have a treat today after an overwhelming amount of requests. I have secured one of the most anticipated interviews in the history of Rise Together. That's right. My 99-year-old grandmother. It's her birthday today, the day the episode comes out. Grandma Lee is the guest on this episode of Rise Together. My grandmother, the matriarch of the family, has been through so many things in a 99-year life. And we have a conversation about what that perspective affords her, what has given her the drive to keep going through hard times, where faith has played a role in her life, and so many other things. This woman is a baller, a veteran of war, a single mother to five, someone who's moved multiple states and seen so much life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lee Farrell, my grandma, to the Rise Together podcast. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. All right, Graham, I'm so excited that you're here. I mean, this is maybe the most excited that the audience has ever been about a guest on the Rise Together podcast. So I appreciate you doing this. I shared with everyone the wisdom that you afforded me about how in your long life, you had been through a bunch of hard times and you, in having been through hard times, knew for sure that my ability to get through them existed and that getting through this season that I'm in was going to make me stronger on the other side. And after I shared that story, people immediately demanded that I got you on this show. So you are the most requested guest we've ever had on this podcast, and I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, I know about you, but no one who's listening knows anything about you. Tell anyone who's listening just a tiny bit about the 98 years that you have lived on this planet. Well, I have had a very, I think, unusual life. First of all, I'm the only American born in my, in my family. Even my younger brother was born in Italy. So were my mom and dad. We never had a relative in America, even to come to visit. So we had to make our own life. And because my father was a binge drinker on wine, we had no social life with other Italian people that we might have met. So my brother Louie and I just did our own thing, and we were very successful in getting friends and doing things and being happy people. Unfortunately, he passed away long before, and I'm still here. He was 84 when he died, had been married 
twice. He, uh, Lou and I were married 1947. And in the next seven or eight years, we had five children, your mother being the fourth of five. There was Ken, Don, Alice, Patty, your mom, and Tom. Unfortunately, your uncle Ken died a few years ago. He was a very, to me, unusual man. Took a three-year spirituality course so that he could speak individually to people on spiritual matters, which made me feel very good. Then we moved from Ohio to Michigan and eventually to California. Your grandpa Lou had a mental problem, unfortunately. He was not able to hold down his engineering positions. So I remained, we moved from Ohio to Michigan. And when the job at the Ford Motor Company fired him, he went back to live with his parents. And I stayed in Michigan and I went to work for Ford. And in Ohio, this man who had been let go from different companies was hired by Robert Shaw Fulton of Los Angeles, California, moved him out to California. And I said, I am going to stay in Michigan for a while. And if you can hold the job, I will then move these five children. Okay. So in 1962, two years after he moved, my five children and I and my mother, who had moved in with me when my father died. So the seven of us embarked on this trip across country in, uh, in a small, uh, what do you call those cars years ago? A, a station wagon, in a, in a small station wagon with all of our luggage. So there, here we are, seven people, a 72-year-old grandma and me and the five kids and all of our luggage didn't pull a trailer, nothing, and took this trip across country and did a lot of sightseeing. We got out here to California, and I said to your uncle and your grandpa, if this job doesn't last, I am not moving these five children again. And sure enough, a couple of years later, well, actually about four, he was with Robert Shaw six years. And right after your uncle Ken graduated, he was going to go to USC. He was accepted. Everything was all set. Then his father loses the job and everything changed. So Ken had to go to junior college. Your grandpa moved back in with his parents, became a letter carrier, and continued for 20, 30 years. Delivering mail came out every year at least once to visit his five children and did anything he could for them. The man was very, very unusual. And I think he should have been out of 
what you, what do you call it? Uh, he could have done something because he was not the usual mental patient. Never took medication. I forced him for two weeks into a mental hospital. And his parent, his father, and his brother, uh, two of his brothers came up from Ohio to Michigan to put him into the into the mental hospital. And they told him to go for two weeks. So the day before the two weeks were up, the psychiatrist called me and said, we have to release your husband. He's not here on a commitment. You will have to have him committed. He is far from well. And I was scared to death of what was going to happen when he came home. And the first thing he asked for were some guns that we were holding for my brother. I never gave him the guns, and all four of the kids were in school with the exception of Tom. So your poor Tom, he had to spend these days with his dad, who was very, very ill. So uh, let's see. From then on, he went back, became a letter carrier, and I continued to work. And when I got to California, I didn't want to work. I could have gone with Ford down an aeronutronic in Newport Beach, and we were living in Santa Ana. And I went down to interview for the job, and it was in May. So it was gloomy, it was overcast, and I thought, I am not driving every day from Santa Ana to Newport Beach to go to work. So I turned down that job <laughs> and I went to work in the school district. But how that happened was the fuller brush man came to the house and I must have looked out of place. And he said to me, he said, there, you know, he said, there's a school district that is just going to explode because the freeway is going to go right down through Fountain Valley and they'll be looking for people. So I went and I interviewed with the <laughs> substitute district attorney and, and does, uh, substitute principal and so forth because the, the head of the school district had just been indicted for embezzlement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the acting principal interviewed me, and I got hired. And at that time, it was one school, 234 students, and nine teachers. And it really did explode, and new schools were being built all the time. After my summer off, I never knew where I was going to be working. Part of the time, we worked in homes that were being built in Huntington Beach. And one home would be the central office, and the, each, each other, all the other homes had to do with the different grades. It was a very interesting experience. And I remained with Fountain Valley until I retired in 1979. My mother died in November of 1979. And I retired in the following July. I took a month off. Maybe I was still working. I don't remember. Anyhow, 
I took a month of July and I left these five children home alone and I went to Italy to look up any relatives that I might have still living there. And the only aunt or uncle that I had was my mother's oldest aunt, Matilda. She was the oldest of seven and she didn't think she had room for me. So she found me a place down the street and I went to live with this other woman. And my aunt had a standing order with the restaurant in the area. So I ate with her every day. And in Italy, you ate your main meal at noon. And then this, the restaurants would close until evening or later in the day when you had a small like supper. That was an interesting experience. And that was 1970. Now, did, Graham, did you fight in a war? Is this real? Pardon? Did you fight in a war? Oh, in 19, let's see. Okay. In 19, I graduated from high school in 1939. I did not want to go to college. So I went to work and I was a good secretary. I started actually in high school. They had a program in high school where you could work so many hours a month under this program. And I joined the program. I worked in high school for uh, the head of one of the the divisions. I went to West Technical High School in Cleveland, Ohio. And it, it only, it had commercial course and had uh, a, uh, you could, if you wanted to be some kind of a, a worker, like a uh, construction worker, it had a metal, metal course, it had woodworking, it had very little uh, uh, course for going on to college. It was a technical school is what it was called. And so I went to West Technical High and I graduated from there. And in 1939, I went to work uh, and, <laughs> and it was, it looked like the war and that we were gonna get ourselves into war. So at one point, my father who loved to read, he had taught himself to read and write in America long before he married my mother, because that was another whole story. <laughs> he, uh, saw an ad that they were looking for people in Washington, D.C. And so he told me about it. He said, you better call and find out what this is all about, which I did. And so they were testing at the post office in Cleveland, Ohio. So I took a day off of work. I rented a typewriter and I took the test. And about (laughs) two or three days later, I get a telegram I've got a job with the War Department in Washington, D.C. And I had no desire to leave home. My my parents were wonderful to me, but I had the job. It paid about twice as as much as I was making. So on my 19th birthday, December 3rd, 1940, I left for Washington, D.C. and became a uh, secretary. in the war department. And I Unreal. had, I had, I had, I rented an apartment and I had to find roommates. So I got three roommates, one from Maine, one from Iowa and one from South Dakota. 
And that summer of 1940, all three of them were getting married. And I decided, I don't want to look for three other roommates. I'm going to go back home. <laughs> so back I go to Cleveland, and I transferred to the Treasury Department. So I was working in the downtown main post office. They had an office, the Treasury Department, and all we did was type checks all day long. And one of the middle employees was Dorothy, Dorothy Newman. And she and I became very good friends. And at one point, I happened to notice on the uh, mail disk that another district, uh, another federal uh, government office was coming to Cleveland. And that was the, uh, let's see, it was not the FHA, it was Federal Public Housing Authority, FPHA. And they were beginning to build all this, this housing for people who were going to Second World War. And all these people, that's when a great many of the Black communities from the South, the people from that area who were struggling financially, came up to Detroit. And we built a great big housing area called Willow Run and provided the housing for these people coming from the South. And uh, the auto industry quit making cars and began making trucks and, you know, uh, uh, war equipment department. I worked for them uh, in Ohio. I did not move to Michigan. They had an office in Cleveland. So I stayed there until I got married in and your grandpa already had a degree before he went into the Army Air Corps. And when he got out, I wrote to all kinds of, of, of uh, military men. And I wondered, you know, who's coming home first and what's going to happen? And he was one of the first. So he and I began dating. And by August of 1947, we got married. Real quick, can I just go back? You were writing letters to a bunch of different people. You were playing the field. And then you decided on a person who returned home first. I, yeah, right. I, I, I love know, this. I love this I, about you, well, Graham. You know, Come on. You know, I, had to have, I had to have somebody who was Catholic. I had to have somebody, you know, who's a good person. And so, and I could not have married into a better family. The cachets were wonderful. Yeah. But fortunately, your, your grandpa had this mental illness that he would not do anything. He should have been autopsied because that man, for what he did with his life under those circumstances, is unbelievable. Yeah. It really is unbelievable. That man could have never took drugs, never drank. I mean, he was not an alcoholic. He was not a druggie, had no other problems. And yet, and to go from an engineering career to delivering mail as he did, and to make it work for as many years as he did, and to help his five kids as much as he did, is unbelievable. It is. But I, because I of that. Hmm? 
I know. I agree. I was witness to the end of it. I agree. Yeah. And then, so I got a divorce, which was against, totally against my religion, my principle, everything. I only am allowing myself to be divorced because you got divorced. So thank you for your model. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am, you know. It's a joke, they, Graham. I'm Graham, it's, so... it's, it's a joke, Grandma. What? I was making a joke. Oh, I know. And I am so sad about your situation. Uh, but anyhow, I had met Harry, my second husband, before I met your grandpa. I met Harry in the middle of 1943. And this Dorothy that I worked under in, at the Treasury Department, she and I became really good buddies. And so in the middle of June of 1943, she and I went to a play in Cleveland. She lived on one side of town, I lived on the other. So whenever we did something together, we would go either at her house or to my house. That night we were going to my house. And when we got out of the theater, the transportation was on strike. There was no streetcars, no buses, nothing. So we were figuring out what the heck are we going to do? And Dorothy, being a good German, loved her beer. And we're walking down the main street of Cleveland, Euclid, Ohio, Euclid Avenue. And he says, oh, let's go in here. Let's go in and have a beer. So I don't drink beer. So we go into the bar. It's about 1130 at night. And as we're walking in, the one who turned out to be my second husband was at the bar picking up drinks. And he walks over to us and he says, why don't you ladies come and join me and my buddies in the back? So we followed him and we met these other two men and we continued, you know, to sit with them. And they were stationed, they were all in the Navy and they were stationed on my side of town and we were going to stay, spend the night at my house. So the five of us, that's how we got home that night. And she began dating one of those two men, Keith, and they were transferred. You know, they left Cleveland, they went somewhere else. And so she corresponded with Keith. And about a year later, she says to me, I'm going out and I'm going to marry Keith. And I say, you're nuts. I said, what do you know about the man? Well, to make, a, to make a long story short, they were married almost 50 years before he died. Anyhow, so many years later, I'm in California and Lou has gone back. Your grandpa has gone back to live with his parents and Dorothy and Keith are in the Sacramento area. So they start, oh, they came down to visit Harry and his wife, Pat. They were, Pat was living... Harry and Pat were living in Long Beach, Dorothy and Keith in Sacramento, and I'm in Santa Ana. So after Lou went back to Ohio, I would always be a fifth wheel. They would come down and the five of us would go out. In the meantime, Harry's wife dies. That's his second wife. And so the next time they come to town, let's, let's call, let's take Harry with us. He's, he's pretty down in the dumps and blah, blah, blah. So 
that was in the beginning of 19, I don't know, anyhow. So that's what started us dating. And eventually, Harry and I married in 1977, I guess. Yeah. And you kind of know the rest of it. I know the rest of the story. I like the rest of the story. All right, let me ask you this. If you could go back to you at 25, knowing everything you know at 98, what would you tell the 25-year-old version of yourself? Well, you know, I would say that I have done a pretty good thing in dealing with what I've always had, what I have had to deal with from really from the time I was born, you might say, because of my dad's drinking, because of, uh, of your, you know, of my, sec- my husband's illness. And, you know, I, I just did the best I could do. And I, and I went to work and I worked until I retired. And I finally ended up in the school district and I was a school office manager and I retired and uh, I met many wonderful people. And uh, I've lived, I think, an interesting life with both good and bad, like we all do. And I think that I have weathered the bad as well as I could. I have really no regrets. I love that. There's a lot of listeners, Graham, who are trying to balance their pursuit for their work and the responsibilities with their families. And sometimes they experience guilt in wanting to pursue work. You were someone who had, you were a single mom, you worked. How did you deal with guilt, mom guilt? Did you have it? Do you have any advice for anyone who experiences mom guilt? My mother moved in when she was 72, after my father died. And there was no way I could leave my mother in Ohio. At that time, I lived in Michigan. I brought my mother to Michigan to live with me. I had to go to work. And so I never had to have a sitter. I had so many blessings along with the bad uh, situations that were handed to me. My father died at a perfect time because I needed to go to work. And, and I needed to take care of my mother. And so here we are, 1962, the five kids, 72-year-old grandma and me, driving across country <laughs> to California. <laughs> and when I got here, I said, this is it. I am not leaving. I am not moving these five children again. And I was so fortunate. <laughs> How I got the job, we had just barely moved in. We were renting a house in Huntington Beach, which was way too small for eight, eight people. Yeah, my, my, uh, your uh, grandpa was still with us initially. And so we were looking for a place to buy. And the Fuller Brush Man comes to the house. And I must have looked out of place. And he says to me, there's a school district that is just going to bloom. The freeway is going through the middle of Fountain Valley. And there they have one school now. They're supposed to grow to 
26 schools in the next few years, and they're looking for help. Uh, I went down and I applied and I was hired. And at that point, there were three of us women. There were, I think, eight, eight or nine teachers and two or 300 kids. And uh, <laughs> we worked in this little, this little wooden building with holes in, in the wooden floor the high heels, but sometimes we get stuck in those. That was so, it was so funny working there. And it did, it did grow. I always had the summers off. And in September, I never knew what school I was going to. I never knew where I would be. And at one point, we were running a school out of a tract of brand new homes that instead of having the builder finish them and sell them, they uh, somehow made an arrangement with the school district. So the principal and I and maybe a couple of other women were in one building to run the place. And then each uh, other house was a different grade. And the teachers would, would teach the kids out of, this was in Huntington Beach. Uh, so it, it was interesting. Interesting, you know. Let me ask you this, Graham, because you have experienced hard times. You've gone through loss. You've 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 had divorce. You've had now two husbands that have passed away. Plenty of friends that are dead. You've gone through. You've gone through hard things. What has helped you get through your darkest moments? I lost two husbands, a son, and a grandson. And the grandson committed suicide, which was the month after 9-11. Nathaniel, I feel so bad for Tom and Mary Lynn. Here was Tom, who extremely intelligent, with no social skills at all. And the guy never wanted to go to college. I mean, that man is so bright and has a tremendous memory. And yet, he did not want higher education, but ended up 30-some years in a school district office as a manager, a middle manager. So he retired at 57. He's got a good pension, and his wife is so happy. We just got together a week ago on Saturday, and Tom and Mary Lynn and Don and Carol came. Alice was here. Your mom and dad were in Texas. And we had this Saturday dinner. And Mary Lynn sat next to me. And she's eight years older than Tom. And he married her with five children. (laughs) And she could not stop raving about how wonderful Tom is and what he's doing for her. And she's beginning to kind of lose it. And, and she was originally Jewish. Yeah, she is a Jewish person. But in high school, some friend of hers told her that Jesus was a Jew. So she became, uh, she became a, a, a Christian way back in high school. And, and, she, and she and Tom uh, are very involved. She's a, a Bible a teacher 
and they're very involved in their whatever. I don't think it's the uh, denominational uh, Protestant, but whatever it is. It's a, so he's my only non-Catholic. Uh, all the rest of my children are still Catholic. And of course, I lost my son, Kenny, who was, uh, he, he was, took a three-year course to help. How did you get through all these hard times? Oh, I got it all. My faith in God is the one that got me through it. Yeah. I've never lost my faith from the time, you know, I was born a Catholic. And I went to Catholic school part of the time. And the nuns thought, sure, I was going to be a nun. So they were especially nice to me until I decided to go to the public high school. <laughs> that was so funny. But uh, I've never lost my faith, no matter what I had to face. I knew, you know, that I, I never talked about it. Really, uh, I'm not one of these Jesus people, you know, some that every other word has something to do with faith or God. I, I, I just don't agree with that. I think that what you, how you live is your faith. I've never been one of these persons to talk about it. I figure how you live your life is what shows what your faith means to me, to you. Yeah. To, yeah. And like I say, if it weren't for my faith, I wouldn't be here today because some of these things might have, you know, laid me low. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me ask you this. You were a single mother for a stretch. There are single right. mothers who are listening right now. Are there any tips that you would give to how you were able to successfully be the mother of five human beings on your own? Well, like I say, God was good to me. And when it came to that point is when my father died. I mean, here I am losing my father. But I couldn't really mourn that because I knew I had to take care of my mother. And she had to help me. So at 72 years of age, I moved her from Ohio to Michigan to California. And I never had to hire a sitter. And she lived with me until she was diagnosed pancreatic cancer. Okay. At that point, it was in the winter of 19, what, 79. I was still working. I still had five children at home. And so I said, Mom, I have to put you into a nursing home. I'm not here to take care of you. That woman should be a saint up in heaven. I mean, she accepted it. She went in. <laughs> I took her to this home. Actually, it was just up the street from our house. <laughs> it was run by these Mexican nuns you know, from Mexico. And they take us in to this room 
to show grandma where she's going to be living. And the woman in the room didn't want her. I mean, she was nasty as could be. And my mother didn't pay the bit of attention to her and moved right into the next bed. <laughs> and she lived another six months until she died. It was, uh, and never took medication, never had chemo, nothing. And she just lived in that place until she had, I don't know if it was a stroke or what it was, but anyhow, from the nursing home, she went back into uh, the hospital and, and then she came out of the hospital. This was an, uh, an assisted living that she was in. Then she went to the hospital, came out of the hospital into the nursing home. And then that's, that's where she finally passed away. But it was only six months after she was diagnosed, took no medication, no chemo or anything. And she would still take walks sometime during those six months. She was, my mother really was a saint. It's all I can, to come from a, a wealthy upper class family and to marry this no good. <laughs> Actually, I love my, I love my dad. <laughs> but he couldn't hold a job. <laughs> and after he had come over in a very young age. He was the youngest of four children. And when his mother died, I think he was eight years old. And he was supposed to listen to his two older sisters. He had two sisters and a, and a brother who were all older. So I don't know what age he actually was, but he was very young. Came to America, knew nothing, nobody here, learned to read and write, became a citizen, joined the American army, spent years in the Philippines uh, on horseback. He never learned to drive, never had a car. <laughs> it was, you know, my mother and I, is, it's amazing that we turned out like we did. And I think most of it was because of my mother. That, yeah. that kind of woman that my mother was never complained. If 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 he was yelling in the middle of the night or had the radio on too loud, she'd take the dog and go for a walk. Two o'clock in the morning, there would be my mother out on the street, <laughs> and she would tell. And like Christmas, he was always drunk, and so. These people from all these charitable organizations, they would always take, Louie and I always spent Christmas with some family that we didn't know and who were just doing a kind deed. <laughs> and mothers would say, go, 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 have a good time. <laughs> never, never say, you know, poor me. <laughs> she, she was fantastic. So tell me this, Graham. You've been alive for a very long time. I don't want to say that you're old. You're not old. You're getting close <laughs> to being old, though. What do you credit to your longevity? How have you made it on this planet for this long? Well, I have to give God the credit because I have been very, very 
healthy. And that, I would say, uh, my, my good health is a big part of it. I have had pneumonia three or four times. Uh, I've been in the hospital. I've been in rehab. And yet, I'm here. You are. I've not had a, a stroke. I shouldn't say this. Stroke or heart don't attack. Say it, don't say it out loud. Don't jinx the universe at this point. You have a bridge game tomorrow. Don't do anything that could compromise your bridge. So that's the story. Are you still playing bridge a couple times a week? I played yesterday. I'm playing tomorrow. <laughs> You're a baller. You love this bridge. You still have that gentleman I, friend of yours? Now that, Harry, you? now that Harry's gone, I have the most wonderful men in my life. Okay, okay. I, easy, easy. It's a little too soon for me. I, and yesterday, I played with uh, Mike, let's see, Mike, uh, uh, Bob, and Betty. Yeah, there was two men and two women. And tomorrow, I will play with Mike, Mark, and whoever they bring in would be another man. <laughs> this Mark, I love, I, mean, I love them all. But this Mark, uh, very interesting. Uh, his mother wrote a book, and I have a copy of the book. And I finally got around to reading it. And I said to Mark, next time I saw him, I said, Mark, I said, I would love to meet your mother. I said, we have so much in common. She was in the war. Uh, she was born the same year I was born. And she was a, a great convert to Catholicism. Oh, my. After she, they wouldn't allow her. In those days, if you were Catholic, you couldn't marry a non-Catholic. And so they told her she had to become Catholic. So she became Catholic. And usually, a convert is a much, a much better Catholic than those of us who were born Catholic. And she ends up, she had apparently a good voice. And so she ends up, and I don't know how many Catholic churches, running the choirs and, and helping here and helping. So I have her book. And, and after, like I say, after I read it, I said to Mark, oh, I would love to meet your mother. And he said, unfortunately, she's gone. <laughs> and he, was the, he is the oldest of her three children. And I love the man. He uh, has very little to say. <laughs> the one day Alice was here when your mom and dad were in Texas. So she... Uh, played with us while she was here. She she found out all kinds of stuff of, about Mark. And here I've been playing with him for a year or two. And I said, well, I, I don't ask too many questions. But anyhow, uh, the man, there's just something about him. He's the oldest of this woman's three children. I don't know what the other, you know, if the other two are girls or boys or what. But... Uh, and then tomorrow, I'll have three men, Mark, Mike, and, uh, and this Mike Oliva. Oh, my God. He, he just, he, he's Italian. <laughs> and these guys are all married. They've got their wives still alive. And uh, so, uh, but I had, I knew his mother-in-law. 
uh, and she just passed away early this year, I think in February. And she was born the same year I was. And she was a bridge player. And I knew her. I've known, I had known her for years. And uh, so, uh, and he loved his mother-in-law. And uh, I, I, somehow I was with him February. I was with her and him and his wife. And I don't remember who else. All right, let me ask let me ask you this. You mm-hmm. have been witness to a lot of inventions in a hundred years of living. That's right. What would you say are among the most influential inventions of your lifetime? The most influential what? Inventions. Oh, inventions. Oh. Well, I like the dishwasher. <laughs> yes. Well, I love the automobile people, but that's not, that was invented before until the five kids took my car away from me (laughs) a couple of months before I turned 96. Oh, we're still talking about that? Yeah, I I drove. Let's let's not litigate you driving or not at 96. Mm -hmm. We, no, this isn't, we can't, we can't dive into that. We don't have enough time to talk about whether you should still be driving or not. Yeah, they took the car away from me, and uh, <laughs> those horrible kids. I know. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to them. We'll talk to them. Well, Andy bought it and gave me Blue Book, $5,000. We got Blue Book so, for the car. That's good. Apparently, yeah. And uh, now I, I, you know, I've just been a pretty lucky lady. That's all I can say. Yeah. All right, and how about this? Is- Let me ask you this question. Okay. Fear. The people who are listening, inevitably, they run into fear. Have you run into fear in this crazy life of yours, and how have you overcome it? Fear. Huh. It's interesting. I really can't, can't come up with fear. You're fearless? Well, yeah, I have fear of falling because I've had some bad falls. And I sure as heck don't want to fall. I was in the hospital not too long ago, and that's because I fell on the driveway. Grandma, you make me laugh. Come on. I'm talking about fear in your life, not fear when you're 97 worried about breaking a hip. I don't know what. You never had fear? Sure, I've had fear. Maybe that's the beauty of getting older. You don't remember the things you were afraid of. Oh, I've always... Oh, to begin with, I was afraid of the dark and and I was afraid of being alone. And if uh, we were, I was never a big pet person, but everybody else in my family was. So we always have at least a dog, sometimes a cat and a dog. And so on the very few occasions that I would be home alone and my parents were hardly ever gone together because they had no social life. And, uh, but anyhow, when I, if I might have been home alone, I would take the dog and have the dog sit on my lap or right next to me while they were gone because he helped me lose some of that fear. And so despite and of course, I married Pat, uh, your mom, who has never really had a pet, 
doesn't want a pet. Uh, my mother loved pets. She would even help the dogs have their babies when she had female dogs most of the time. And when they would have their babies, she would be right there. And then she got tired of that. So finally she kept one of the male dogs called Snowball and got rid of the mother dog. And we had Snowball for the rest of his life until he was run down by a car. And uh, for Donnie, Donnie is coming home from something. It's, it's night and Snowball somehow gets out of the house and he up on the Bristol. It was a Bristol, Great, Great Street, Santa Ana. And here comes this car and, you know, hits, hits poor Snowball. And Don has to bring him home and, and we had to put him down. But uh, most of my kids, see Don, I, th I think has, oh yeah, Don's, Don's wife, Carol, my God, she's so attached. She had two, these, two of these dogs for a long time. One is finally gone, but oh, she just loves those dogs. And then, uh, and Mary Lynn, <laughs> Mary Lynn was a great pet person. And finally she was without, and pets had all died. <laughs> all right, she, let me ask you this, Graham. Yeah. You said you don't have any regrets, but would you do anything over again? Would you do something different if you could, looking back? Well, I think I might have gone on to school. I had the intelligence to do it, but I was lazy. <laughs> I didn't want to study. And yet I love learning. I really do love learning. And in most of my grown up years, I have enjoyed history and I wish I knew more of it. I think history is fascinating. Let me ask you this. Good. How do you stay motivated on the days you don't feel like it? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I can remember one morning recently, I just, I woke up and I thought to myself, I'm not getting out of this bed. I'm going to stay here until the good Lord takes me. <laughs> <laughs> but I got up, here I am. You're up, you're always up. You've been up every time I've ever talked to you. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, will you tell what you told me on the phone when I was talking to you about going through hard times, the perspective that you have in having experienced hard times, that if someone's listening and they're going through hard times, that you know, having been through them, that you can get through them? Faith. Faith is my um, prayer. I pray every day. Pray in the morning. I say the whole rosary before I get out of bed. Uh, I love my faith. I love going to mass. Uh, for a while, I had a much younger woman picking me up, like maybe on a Monday or maybe on a, on a Wednesday, 
And that continued until we had this coronavirus thing. And then finally, uh, of course, she stopped coming. And then a week ago, Monday, she, or prior to that, I think she called me or Patty. Everybody calls your mom now because they know I can't hear. And <laughs> so anyhow, Maria took me to church a week ago, Monday. And then I thought I would go this past Monday. I never heard from her. So, but that was kind of feeling like things were going to be a little more normal. But I don't think we're ever going back to where we were. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it's really, to me, it's sad. And yet, if I think about it, all of life is changes as you go along. Things never do stay the same. Uh, oh, I enjoyed, I don't know if I ever told you that I, I went out on my lunch hour and joined the Navy. And then I went back and so I didn't, I was angry with my boss. And I didn't, I wanted, it was a federal job. I didn't want to just leave. And I thought if I go into the service, once I got, come out, I will automatically have my job. That was my motivation. It had nothing to do with being proud <laughs> or wanting to serve. It had nothing to do with anything like that. It was very selfish of me. <laughs> and I did a lot of things. It was just like when I joined the service, I think I told you, I got mad at my boss. I didn't want to quit the job. I was in federal employment. I knew I'd get the job back. I went out on my lunch hour and joined the Navy, <laughs> came back, and I told him, I'm leaving. <laughs> he says, do you know what those women are in the service? They're sluts. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Grandma, how long were you in the Navy? Actually, I joined, <laughs> I went into the Navy Medical Corps thinking, get out of office work, try something different. I always liked military things. I mean, uh, medical, always liked medical. But I, I, um, I decided that at the time there was a nurse corps and you could get your whole nurse's training through the service if you wanted to. And I thought, well, I'm not exactly positive that I want to be a nurse, but I do like the medical profession. So I decided to go into the Navy medical. What happened was about 15 months later, my dad broke his leg and my mother broke her wrist. And here I am with these two older people home and somehow the service must have found out about it. So they gave me, a, what the heck did they call it? A special discharge to go home and take care of my parents. So I was actually only in the Navy 15 months. I left in August and I went home in November and uh, I'm glad I had those 15 months of service. I was in Bethesda, Maryland, the Naval Medical Center, 
where, uh, who the heck was it? This real high government, some guy, I forget his name, but uh, it was just another phase in my life where I met, you know, other people and um, I stayed in touch with somebody or other. I'm losing my memory. That's okay. All right, let me ask you this. Yeah. What legacy do you hope to leave behind once you're gone? Legacy of facing whatever you have to face with positivity, with wanting to get over it, not giving up. I love that. Grandma? Yeah. I love you. I love you too, David. All right. I am. I uh, wish you were here. Hmm? I, I wish I was there too. This would be m- way more fun if I was there. We could have tacos or something now. All right. Well, hey, Graham, I love you. I love you too, David. Thank you for doing this. And I, I, I hope for the best for you. Well, and, thank you. and just <sighs> the best already exists for me. So don't you, your wish is my command. It's working out just fine. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Well, once I'm done with this, I got to go record a couple of videos for a run that we're doing. We were doing a a big run in person, and now it's been canceled by COVID, so we're doing it virtually. So I have to go record some videos to encourage people to train for our now virtual run. Well, the best of luck to you. Thank you. All right. If, If you can leave everyone who's listening with... One piece of advice. What is one single piece of advice that you would give to everyone listening once we put this out on the air? I'm going to say laugh a lot. I think that's a great idea. I love laughing and I have always laughed a lot. That is great advice. All right, Graham, I love you. I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, when are you coming to visit? Soon. I have to come soon. I haven't seen you in person in way too long. All right. I love you. I'll talk to you in a little bit. I love you, honey. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.